So, I did watch the uh, sermon last Sunday on video. So I know I didn't see the exact same one, but I know that Jason preached to us the prologue from John's Gospel, the introduction. And today we're going to look at the beginning of the story preceding that prologue, which is um, this kind of dialogue that John has with his interlocutors. And uh, this is day one of a three-day narrative. So after this, uh, each day is preceded with the next day and then the next day. Um, And Jason also pointed out uh, John's primary purpose, why he wrote this gospel, which is a unique thing when it comes to the gospels. He says that uh, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And uh, I think because of this, we often gravitate towards using John as, as, a, as an introduction to the Christian faith with our friends and family or, or, or uh, you know, strangers, whoever. We often use this book for that purpose because John is so explicit in the reason why he wrote it. We take his word for it. And, uh, but I would suggest that the other Gospels also have this implicit purpose within their sort of Roman biographies uh, genre uh, as well. And in a sense, all of Scripture has this purpose, that we might believe in Christ uh, and have a restored relationship with our God. And Scripture also does serve these additional purposes. It says in the Westminster Confession, chapter 6, that... Uh, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, we talk about uh, how it's proper for reproof, for correction, for equipping the man. And uh, as we'll see today, John's gospel also serves beyond our conversion and into the realm of practicing the faith and living our life. All right? Let's get into it. Verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. Now, we all know that this is not John uh, the author. This is John the Baptist. So we've got two Johns here. So, you know, as I'm speaking, I'll try to say either John the evangelist, author, John the apostle, versus John the Baptist. So, uh, now, it's also interesting that this guy is mentioned in the prologue. When we're talking about this, uh, this introduction, this kind of grand summary of his gospel, and, and in a lot of ways the theme of the Bible, it says, uh, A man sent from God, whose name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. It's 1, 6 through 8. So in the prologue, which is this beautiful summary of the gospel, John the Baptist is such an important part of the story that it's, uh, he's inserted right in the middle in a way that seems almost out of place. And uh, notice John the Baptist's purpose is also the same purpose as the author's purpose, that all might believe through him. So we've got this testimony within a testimony. And then immediately after the prologue, we go right into the details. And this, uh, this is the testimony of John, John the Baptist. Now, there's a lot we could go into about John the Baptist from the other Gospels, from the Old Testament. Uh, they say a lot more about him, but uh, I want to stay true to the text here 
the way John the Apostle tells the story, because he leaves a lot of things out that the other Gospels mention, and he emphasizes some other aspects, and I think it, it, uh, it makes it more interesting to, uh, for, the, for the author's evangelistic perspective. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Um, now, these guys are mentioned in the prologue as well, right? Verse 11, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So John mentions the Jews in his gospel in a variety of ways. And most of the time, he's referring to them as Jewish leadership and the identity uh, of those who did not receive Christ. Um, and in fact, there, there are even some today who say that you know, John is an anti-Semitic because he does often use the term Jew in a, in a, in a, uh, in a negative light. That's obviously very silly since John is Jewish and all the apostles are Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. Um, and he doesn't have some prejudice against Jewish people. But uh, he is making a categorical distinction here, and it's a religious one. In John's gospel, the Jews are those who reject Logos. They're those who reject Christ. And finally, those who call for his death. So John is interested in a religious component, which is a person who does not renounce Old Testament Judaism by embracing the revealed Messiah. And and that still perdures today. Um, Now, as for the kind of authority, you know, you can imagine this very organized, very hierarchical religious order with no real earthly accountability. Um, and it's in Jerusalem. It's something like, you know, Rome and, and, uh, and the Catholic Church there. That This is the epicenter of religion. And this is called the great, you know, the Sanhedrin. And they've got political connections. They've got special interests. They've got power. So they've got skin in the game when it comes to protecting their institution and the means by which they, uh, you know, run the show, to, so to speak, which is their religion. So any type of upheaval has to, has to pass their muster. Um, so they're sending these guys out there, these, these priests and Levites. And uh, these guys are probably members of the council somewhere at the bottom, and they're kind of sent to do the, the dirty work. You know, go out there and, and see what's going on here. And uh, so let John be this enigmatic figure at this point who we can assume is causing enough of a ruckus to get the attention of the Sanhedrin. Um, you know, one uh, little uh, show that gives a really good picture of this, and I'm not advocating watching this because I know there's debate, but the, the show The Chosen, when uh, they show the Sanhedrin, and um, now this is a show about Jesus. So again, I know this is controversial because we have a guy playing Jesus, and not everybody, you know, I only watched the first uh, season. Yeah, <laughs> is that good? I didn't inhale, you know. I watched the first season, none, none of the others. Um, but when they're in there, the guys are in there discussing it, and they have the, the priests, and they're going, you know, we need to check this guy out. And they're going, ah, don't worry about it. And he goes, he called us vipers. He called us vipers. And it, it kind of gives you a really good picture of, uh, you know, hey, you know, go, go ask him who he is. Go ask him who he is. You know, the higher-ups kind of sending the lower downs. Um, so the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He says, I'm not the Christ. Now, notice they don't even ask him uh, who, 
if he's the Christ. But John was calling to confess Christ. And so his first concern is to eliminate such a possibility of even being identified as him at all. And uh, this would have been the, the first assumption. Because remember that the Jews are looking for this anointed political Messiah to come release them from, from Roman oppression. A divinely appointed king like David. Um, but he eliminates this immediately. It's his first concern. So verse 21, they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask him that? Well, you know, when I was a kid, I went to St. Louis, Missouri with my, uh, to visit my, my Jewish uncle. My aunt married a, a practicing Jew. And we had the Passover dinner. And I had the opportunity to sit in for that. And at that dinner, they were all eating, you know, uh, the, the, the different meals, the matzo balls and the, and the or matzo soup, I, I can't remember. But they had a glass of wine here, untouched. And I said, well, who's that for? And they said, well, that's for Elijah. Young kid, I didn't really put it together. But they even went so far as at one point during the meal to go to the door as they're reading this Bible verse and let Elijah in. So the Jews are just really excited about Elijah coming back literally in the flesh as it says in uh, Malachi 4.5. Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, uh, the evangelist's account, interestingly, does not get into the fact that John does look a lot like Elijah. He's got, uh, as we all know, the, he wears the um, wearing camel hair, uh, <laughs> skins, <laughs> eating locusts. Um, and there's a lot of other parallels with, uh, with Elijah. So this would have been the first assumption, you know, well, here, you're, 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 you, know, you look like Elijah, you walk like Elijah, you talk like Elijah. You're Elijah, right? Is that the deal? Um, and he answers, I am not. I am not. Also, maybe a little side lesson here on how we interpret prophecy. Because it says very clearly, Elijah's coming back. And these Jews know the Bible very well. And they're expecting Elijah's coming back. But Jesus says no. came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So we've got to be careful when we interpret biblical prophecy. We can learn from, from this mistake here. The third question, are you a prophet? So the third expectation amongst first century Jews was related to Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses announced, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And uh, there were a lot of different expectations about this. Um, So another end-time figure, and they're going through this list of end-time figures, if you will. Uh, And and this is the third possibility. Um, Now, uh, oh, I just had my notes here. I scribbled with my pen. They actually did have it right, because John is a prophet. But uh, he answers, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You know, enough games here. Tell us who you are so we can go back and satisfy our bosses. And John says, who am I? I am the son of Zechariah. It was foretold about me that I would come. And I leapt in Elizabeth's belly. I knew more than you as a baby. No. <laughs> he doesn't say that. But uh, a great lesson that we can learn from John is his humility. His humility. He, he says, uh, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, I'm just a voice. And listen, I mean, Jesus does, uh, it's not a bad response from a guy who Jesus said is the greatest guy who ever lived, by the way. He says, uh, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John says, I'm a voice, just a voice. But this voice does start to tell us, you know, John the evangelist, the, the author, is telling us who John is not. Now he's about to start letting us understand who John is. Uh, he tells us by what the voice is crying out. He points to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John saying, I'm the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. And this is where, uh, mind you, Isaiah is talking about coming out of exile, back to, out of Babylon, back to, to uh, Judah. And it's a geographic exile. Uh, he's talking about it in very physical terms. And it was fulfilled. The Jews have come back out of exile. They have rebuilt the temple. They are back in Jerusalem. But John the Baptist is addressing a spiritual exile. And Israel is still experiencing that. And he's also showing his ministry to be supported by divine authority by pointing to this Old Testament text. Now, in this fulfillment, it's not about him. Uh, he's, he's just the voice. And the vo this voice doesn't utter anything about himself. It points to Yahweh, like Isaiah did. And he's taking that text where Isaiah is talking about God who's going to prepare the way, and he's applying it to somebody else. He's applying it to Jesus Christ. So he's talking, he's, he's taking text that is applied to God and applying it to Jesus here. So it's another instance of proof of Jesus' deity. Uh, so every fiber of John's being points to Christ. Now, this answer didn't satisfy them at all. They can't go back to the Sanhedrin and say, our investigation is complete. He, he's a voice. And so now we get down to the real controversy here. This is the, the, the nitty-gritty. Now, um, I, 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 this wasn't in any of the commentaries or anything, but I thought about how this uh, part reminds me 
of Satan in the garden. Um, have other people thought this as well? So, listen to this. It's almost framed in this way. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Okay, now we're getting to the, to the, to the nitty-gritty. Now other translations say, are now the Pharisees who had been sent uh, as well. In other words, these guys are in the group too. They're, they're part of the, uh, the questioners, the interrogators. And uh, the Pharisees are really concerned about the important stuff. The Sadducees, they're concerned about power, you know, wealth, political connections. The Pharisees are concerned about what really matters. They're really going to shake things up. They're concerned about the theological implications. Now, uh, this is what Genesis says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field. And that's what I... This reminds me of, now the Pharisees are here, uh, you know, as if to say, uh, yes, yes, so, uh, you're, you're pointing, you're preparing the way, you're pointing away from yourself, um, <clears throat> I, I have a question, I have a question, Mr. Humble, uh, then why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, if you're so humble, and you're not this or that, if you're just a voice... How is it that you're out here doing what nobody with any humility would do? You can hear the half-truth here. You can hear Satan talking here. Okay? Look at your ministry. How can you say you're humble? Now, baptism was not the same back then as it is now. Just to give you a, a, a a brief history... Before John, only Gentile converts to Judaism were baptized. And it was uh, in, order to le- in order to ceremonially cleanse them or wash them because they were unclean. And it was also self-administered. Okay, So in baptizing the Israelites, John's not only uh, administering what was previously self-administered, um, but he was teaching that the chosen people were unclean. So they were as good as the pagans, in other words. And this was, uh, this was unacceptable. I mean, can you imagine, you know, all the pagans, all the Jews, get in a line here. We're going to come down here into the, jo- the Jordan River. You're all the same. Uh, and furthermore, their temple could not cleanse them, is what he's essentially saying. Because you go get, get cleansed in, in, at the temple. So he scandalized the priesthood in that way. And this is a problem. It's another great opportunity for John to pridefully justify himself, right? You'd say, you know who I am? My last name is Baptist. You can put that, fill in the blanks there. John's name, uh, middle name, the, and last name, Baptist. I'm just kidding. That's not, tr- that's not correct. Um, that was, uh, I got that off the chosen, actually. And, uh, I it has all kinds of inconsistencies. No, he, he, uh, he, it, was, it was an opportunity for him to finally, you know, give the credentials. Um, now, he points away from himself again. They try to trick him, just like they do. These are the Pharisees, the ones who come up with all the tricky questions with Jesus, right? Well, they tried, tried this with John. And he says, I baptize with water, but... So he sets up another deflection here. He's admitting, yes, I, ha- I have... 
uh, a ministry where I'm administering a sign. But there's a catch here with that conjunction. But it lets us know that it's contrasted with something better. You know, I baptize with water. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's preparatory. It's a baptism of repentance. So John is, in fact, saying, hey, if, if I may lead you back to the truth here, just like my voice doesn't point to me, the ritual doesn't either. It exists to prepare us. For among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to tie. So he says, I baptize with water, but something you should know is that someone is here standing amongst the common people that he's so much greater than me, it's impossible to describe it in the positive sense. He's, he's using a cultural uh, example here of the slave untying the master's sandal, and he's saying, I can't even meet that criteria. So he's just, again, the ultimate example of humility for preachers. So, but we have kind of a partial answer here. He gives, um, he tells us why he's baptizing very clearly and uh, that it's for repentance. You know, that's the first reason. In order to prepare the way of the Lord, that is uh, to get ready to be led out of spiritual exile. But the second reason has something to do with revelation. And this, that is his baptism will reveal who's yet to come. And uh, so this is not the sermon to get into an exhaustive explanation of uh, baptism, why he ends up baptizing Christ here on day one. We don't get that. He doesn't, he doesn't do that on day one. Compare and contrast baptism from, you know, what's happening then to what's happening now. But I do think something to think about in our day is how exactly do sacraments help us? You know, how do these physical rites and rituals help us? You know, in some ways, pagans back then would have understood this better than moderns would today. They would have understood something like consecration. Whereas we today emphasize, we think that ideas are more real than things. Okay? Think about that. We uh, often emphasize, you know, the experience. You know, well, why, why do we do ceremonial things? Well, maybe it'll, it's a psychological impact. You know, that's why. But we don't really see that so much in Scripture, do we? I mean, Chris said earlier, when we were singing earlier, you know, it doesn't seem right to sit while we're singing a song that says arise. We did communion because of special circumstances with these packets. Why don't we just keep doing it like that? More convenient. And it's because God cares about the physical world. We are physical beings. And um, it's one of the things that you know, we can think about today after hearing this text. You know, John didn't say, hey, repent. This is, God looks at the heart. You know, this is like being washed in the Jordan River. It's, it's like that. Um, prepare, prepare for the way of the Lord. No, they got in this river and got really wet. And that's why I appreciate Jason. He uses lots of water when he baptizes these kids. And the women go, oh, Jason! 
And, uh, you know, something's happening there, right? We, we've got the real symbol. Madeline was actually waterboarded into the kingdom. She's definitely going to heaven, you know? I think, uh, you know, the Baptists always said, well, I didn't remember, you know, you don't remember your baptism. That's no good. And Madeline, I think you actually remember it. It's like, uh, we give her a glass of water and she's like, ah, ah, ah. I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. That's not a great argument, though, because obviously, uh, you know, kids didn't remember being circumcised and they didn't have a problem with that. You know. well, the adults did, but, you know, kids, the poor, poor adults. Um, now, where was I? Where was I? I'm still not good enough to have note cards, you know, so I'm kind of reading off these papers, you know, still, still learning. Um, all right, so, yeah, the, the, just the thing to think about. I wanted to, I wanted to think about how the modern church uh, thinks about reality with this emphasis on, on being baptized in order to prepare. You know, how do, how do we be prepared, right? That's, that's, a, great, that's a great question. Um, now, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So, again, this is not some myth, some legend. So John tells us where and when. And uh, there also may be some theological significance to that. It's across the Jordan, right? We're coming out of a spiritual exile, you know, looking to go back and enter Judah across the river. So something else to go home and, and deep dive into. Um, so until the next day, how does, how does this serve John the uh, evangelist's main purpose that we might believe in the name of the Lord and have life in his name, do you think? Uh, well, I'd say, first of all, we can say that John the Baptist is Old Testament fulfillment. And uh, for the reader to, to see that by these Old Testament references is validating. And also, it, it reveals and validates the anointed Christ because John clearly is a prophet. And we can uh, begin to show within the, the testimony, within the testimony, who Jesus is to the reader. But how about for us believers? You know, how does a book that sole purpose is to evangelize, if you already believe, well then how can it serve you? And how can it, how can it serve us today? Is there any application for us believers? Well, I do think, again, um, obviously it can be a tool, right? We, we, it can serve us by, you know, hey, let me take you through John's gospel. But it also, uh, when we, anytime we see God's providential hand working throughout history, it does encourage the faith, and it gives us reassurance, uh, which is a necessary aspect of, a, of our, our spiritual lives. Uh, we can look back at this and say, wow, you know, 400 years since the last prophet, and God brings in John. And as a Christian, uh, I, I think when we read accounts like this, when we read about you know, Abraham preparing the sacrifice and getting dark and he's just falling asleep. When we read about uh, Israel sojourning and going through hard times and here we have this 400-year break and here comes John the Baptist right, right when all hope seems lost. Also very encouraging for the believer. So there's tremendous amount to be gained reading John's gospel, knowing God better, and therefore being able to love him more. You know, that's, 
and glorify Him more, right? We say that. That was the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Forever. Constantly see our lives in this context. But finally, and perhaps um, maybe, maybe even most importantly for us who already believe, is that there's a connection between John the Baptist's ministry to ours. John came to prepare God's people for the coming Lord. Well, what are we doing here today but preparing for the coming Lord? Now, there's lots of differences, obviously. We uh, are under a different period. John's preparing for the inauguration of, of Christ, the coming Lord, or as our, uh, when we sing the song about the, the kingdom, um, the, uh, the already, right? That's the already Christ has come to inaugurate his kingdom. And, uh, and then the hymn also says the not yet, right? We're preparing under different circumstances for the consummation of the kingdom. But we're still being ready. We're still always trying to be prepared. Um, and on the other hand, uh, that's another good question, isn't it? I mean, we talk a lot in the Christian circles about being ready, about being prepared. You know, I want to be ready. You know, I want to be prepared. Well, how do you be prepared? You know, how do you be ready today? Because uh, more, more, more often, it has something to do with, like, the end of the world. You know, like, being ready and being prepared is kind of looking over your shoulder for the Antichrist all the time, right? I, uh, Jason's laughing. You know, I'm being better behaved since you're here. You know, I had a lot better jokes. And things like that. Um, you know, I grew up, nothing against, uh, you know, North Lake, obviously, but one of the things that I, if you would have asked me what the gospel was back then, I probably would have started talking about the Antichrist rather than Christ. So this, this idea of being ready and being prepared can sometimes um, take on the, the, that end times idea. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with being aware and educated about the culture, being able to point out evil and things like that. But I, I do want to make this point. You know, when I was thinking about being prepared and, 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 and getting ready for the coming Lord, is that it doesn't matter if you get taken up like Elijah in a fiery way to meet Christ in the sky and never see death and Jesus comes back, or if you walk out of here and drop dead. There's one judgment. There's, not, uh, there's, not a, there's no implication as far as uh, if Jesus comes back and you're here and you're doing something dumb, right, is the point. He's not going to say, all right, all right, end of the world's here. Everybody who died naturally over here, you guys go to heaven. All you people who were alive when I came back, what were you doing? You know, you weren't ready. You weren't prepared. You were supposed to be watching the 700 Club, not the Chosen. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm really railing on the Chosen, aren't I? Nobody's going to ever watch that. Um, so there's no difference. So being ready and being prepared can't be some secret knowledge about the end of the world. Um, so what does it mean then to be prepared and be ready? How does someone do it? Well, I would argue that we do it a lot like John the Baptist. 
right here in day one. John the Baptist's way, which is Isaiah's way, which is God's way. By repenting, getting baptized, and following Christ. That's how you prepare the way. That's how you prepare yourself. This is a perpetual life of a Christian. It's a life of repentance, thereby proving your baptism, which yields the fruit of, a, of repentance, which is obeying Christ. Sounds a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That's our mission. That's how we be prepared. That's how we be ready. It's, it's just like here on day one. That's something that our ministry is connected to John's ministry. So, as we prepare for both death and or the coming of Christ, just like John the Baptist, let's pray. I'm going to, I'm going to use Isaiah 43 to pray. Father in heaven, I pray that this church would prepare the way of the Lord, that we would make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low. Let us remove all obstacles, un the uneven ground. Let it become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen.